When you think about starting materials in the development of therapeutic peptides and antibodies and vaccines, your thoughts might default to mammalian cell cultures and the egg yolks of chickens. But there's a growing number of biopharma companies turning to greener sources of cell production, quite literally greener, as in cell lines produced from plants. iBio is one such company. A developer of therapeutics and vaccines derived from hydroponically grown N. benthamania, and I probably pronounced that wrong even though I practiced it prior, (laughs) a close relative of tobacco, iBio is exploring a broad pipeline of candidates to address fibrotic diseases, oncological indications, COVID-19, and even swine flu in feral and domesticated pigs. I'm Matt Piller. You're listening to The Business of Biotech, and on today's show, we're going to learn all about iBio's approach from the company's chief operating officer, Randy Maddox. Now, Randy, for his part, is not a backyard botanist. Uh, he's a veteran biopharma developer who brings plenty of time, plenty of time in the, in the big leagues, in the majors, to the iBio effort. Prior to joining iBio, Randy was SVP and Chief Manufacturing Officer at Aptivo Therapeutics. He was VP and Site Director at GlaxoSmithKline, where he led the largest biopharma development and manufacturing site within the GSK network and helped launch GSK's CDMO services business. Prior to that, he worked in senior quality and operations positions at Human Genome Sciences and Biogen. Randy earned his B.S. in chemistry and M.S. in analytical chemistry from East Carolina University in advance of a Duke MBA. Randy, welcome to the show. Thank you, Matt. Happy to be here. I'm happy to have you. And this isn't for the, you know, for the record, for the audience's uh, awareness, this isn't the first time that you and I have recorded together. In fact, you, uh, iBio uh, only became more interesting to me as a potential podcast guest um, after you joined me and uh, Paul Testa over at Kiowa Kieran and Sutro Bio's Dev Luhar for a Bioprocess Online live event on process automation last, I don't know, September. Right. Um, so I appreciate you for joining me for that. And I really appreciate you for, after having that experience, subjecting yourself once again to my line of questioning. <laughs> No problem, Matt. Thank yeah. you. So today, uh, by the way, that uh, Bioprocess Online live event that I just referenced, that's at bioprocessonline.com under the listen and watch tab if you're interested in in, uh, in viewing that. Um, but today we're going to talk about iBio specifically. We're going to talk about, uh, you know, plant-based um, ther- bi- biologic therapeutics. And I, and I want to start by getting to know you and your rationale for making the move into this space a little bit better. As I noted from the outset, you spent some time with some pretty sizable companies doing some pretty important things, which was more than likely a comfortable place to be. Uh, you were in your wheelhouse, and then at some point you decided that you were going to make a move to an early stage uh, biopharma company, which is, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a bold move in any event, but when that early stage biopharma is doing something as, um, as as different as developing peptides, antibodies, and vaccines from plants. It's, it's quite a bold move. So what was the motivation behind that? <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question, Matt. And, and you know, I, I think the, the rationale was actually pretty straightforward. I, I got into this industry to, to help sick people. And that says about as technical as I probably probably need to put that. And to do that, we need to develop new therapies. There are tons and tons of unmet uh, medical needs out there. Um, 
And this is, I've heard other folks say, this is the golden age of, of medical research because our, our understanding, uh, particularly of our, our own immune system and how that may be used to fight cancers and uh, autoimmune diseases and all these other very serious diseases that, uh, that, you know, to this point have a large unmet patient population. Um, you know, that is my motivation. And I bio in particular because the greatest enemy of any biotech or actually any uh, company in the medical research area is time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, and if you're talking about a, an aggressive cancer indication, for instance, a lot of those patients simply don't have time. Okay. And we also know in our business that most things fail. I mean, you know, we, I, I only half jokingly often say we've, we've cured cancer in mice dozens of times. Okay. Yeah. But, but humans aren't mice. And so we know going into the most things are going to fail. The best of ideas on paper or in theory simply don't pan out when you put them in, into the human body. Uh, but the sooner you can figure that out and move on to the next great idea, the more opportunity you have to actually to help those people that I got into this business to help. And that's really the reason for the move to iBio. I saw this as a, a potentially transformative technology that could really change the speed paradigm um, from where I came and, and, you know, from my background experience. Mm-hmm. All right. So since you brought the, the speed paradigm up, let's just jump right into that. We're going to, you know, right. I, my, my line of questioning um, may not make any semblance of, of uh, order uh, sense to, to you at all, but since That's you, fine. You, you brought it <laughs> fine. We're going to bounce around, but you're uh, you you brought up the speed the speed aspect, and this is not a you know biopharma is 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 uh, historically traditionally generally not a a game of of speed. I mean it's a it's a long term game. So when you when I want you to elaborate on on that word and what the appeal is at iBio around the potential at least for uh, for, sure. for for speedier development. Yeah. Well, you know, I, uh, you know, if you, if you look at the at the product, product development funnel, you'll see the funnel at the top, lots of opportunities, lots of compounds, lots of ideas that go down that funnel and get smaller, smaller, smaller until you get that one drop out of the end, right? Uh, mm-hmm. We've all, I think, seen that. And, uh, you know, the faster you can get down that funnel to get to that that last drop that actually makes it in into onto the market and actually a licensed you know drug to help people the, the better off you're going to be and what we see in biotech of course in, in all large molecule manufacturing uh we're not yet able to do that uh you know chemically through chemical synthesis as you do in, in big pharma with the small molecules so we depend on these hosts we depend on living things right to do this for us because the the artificial things simply don't have the the complexity uh, and the sophistication to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is where the speed of our platform really comes into, into play, which we call this fast farming uh, with a pH uh, for you guys who may want to Google it. Um, and is, what is, it the, really, is the, is both the fast and the farming pH or is it f- fast? No, no, the fast is, is an F the okay. farming is a pH. So yeah, th- thanks for that clarification, Matt. Um, but essentially, what we do is is using the Nicotiana benthamiana, 
which you didn't quite get it right, but you were you were close. Yeah, I, um, I said I said it right when I asked you before we started recording, and then you, I you, you know, did it's, you did. I don't know. Some people struggle but, uh, with some things, <laughs> but it it turns out that plant um, it's it's ideal because it it has it has big leafy leaves, doesn't get that big, uh, and it it actually has a pretty bad immune system. And the reason that's important is that the way our technology works is we take the gene of interest, we create uh, an expression vector for that protein of interest, we insert that into agrobacteria, which is just a plant bacteria, and then we simply expose our host, our benthamiana host, to that agrobacteria, and it infects it. The plant likes it. It gets infected with bacteria. It still stays very healthy and continues to grow. Uh, and then it, it expresses the protein of interest. And uh, that's really where the speed comes in because our, what we call transfection in, in the field, right? There are two types. There's, uh, there's stable transfection, which means the, the gene of interest is actually uh, incorporated into the genome of the host. And there's transient transfection, which means it's not. I don't want to get too technical, but the reason transient transfection in agrobacteria and our, in our platform is so important is that it can be done in a in a fraction of the time it takes to do a stable transfection in other hosts, such as your mammalian cell lines, such as CHO, or your bacterial, such as, as E. coli and the like. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is there is there a... Is there a downside? Is there a negative uh, to trans, trans, uh, transient versus stable transfection? We have not found any any real negatives to this point. Um, in fact, we know it's 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 able to express a wide variety of proteins, everything from cytokines to growth factors uh, to antibodies uh, to FC fusion proteins, all of these type of things. Uh, I think the only, if there's a, a disadvantage right now, is that the body of data out there um, uh, is, is not nearly as large as what you see for a lot of these mammalian systems. Because if you recall, you know, Cho, for instance, and I keep talking about Cho, Chinese hamster ovary cells, yeah. because that's been around for 30 plus years. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was actually, it, it got traction because uh, I believe it was Genentech, and somebody will correct me if I get this wrong, but I believe it was Genentech that had problems expressing one of their early molecules in the host they were using, and they were scrambling. And they said, wow, somebody had this immortal cell line called made from the, a Chinese hamster ovary, a cell, and they used that, and lo and behold, it worked. Mm-hmm. And But when they started out, they were at very low titer, somewhere around, you know, a quarter, you know, 20, 25 grams per liter. And now, of course, that's grown to, you hear all sorts of numbers out there, probably averaging around somewhere three, four, five grams per liter, and even higher in some cases. But that took 30 years. And there's a huge body of data on that. And, you know, with our platform and in plants, there's a far smaller body of data. Now, the good news in all that is that with the speed that we can transfect these bacteria and express it in these plants means we get a lot of repetition, really fast repetition as we work to optimize, you know, as we go forward with this platform. So I think that's the, that's the real positive uh, angle to that. So give us some, uh, 
Try, try to be illustrative. Illustrative. Give give us some uh, some descriptors around what this uh, uh, process looks like. And so you're you're. And let me just. You're, you're in Bryan, Texas. Bryan, B R Y A N, Texas. Yes, at home of Texas A&M University, which I'm sure the Aggies out there will be very happy to hear me say. So awesome, go Aggies! <laughs> and you're and you're and you're growing. Your your hydroponic oper- operation is in is in Bryan, Texas. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Okay. So take us from there. Like take take us from that uh, that hydroponic facility into uh, the the manufacturing facility. Again, I, I don't All want right. you, to, Randy. I know you could you could get really deep into the weeds here, and we don't want to right. go too deep into the weeds. But right. w- what I'm interested in is learning about that process, and then perhaps discussing where, like, at, at what point in that process does it start to look a little bit more like what we what we traditionally know in terms of sure. You know, antibody and vaccine production? Sure. Uh, great question. I'm happy to do that. Um, it's, it's actually fairly straightforward. Okay. Mm-hmm. We, uh, we essentially do like any other, if you grow a garden, the same thing, the, uh, you know, you plant a seed, right? Now the difference is we don't plant a seed in soil. I, we don't use any soil and we don't do it outside. We do it in a controlled environment. As you said, mentioned hydroponically, Mm-hmm. which means there is no soil. We have a substrate, basically a rock wool insulation um, substrate to hold the seed in place and to, you know, to give the plant anchors for the roots. Um, and so we plant that seed, we grow it up in the, in the, in the seed room. And then when it reaches a certain, reaches a certain size, we move it into a larger room and give it a little bit more room to, to breathe, if you will, stretch its leaves, if plants stretch their leaves. Uh, and and mature into the the size plant uh, that we then want to really start our process with. And by that I mean these plants are just plants. Okay, you mm-hmm. can see the same plant if you go to Australia, probably out in the outback, the 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 Benthamiana plant. You can see the very same plant. Uh, well, I caveat that we we do have some. Uh, uh, um, gene gene modified plants. So you won't you won't see those in Australia, but you will see the wild type. Uh, but uh, so they're there, they're growing under these controlled conditions. So we get plants of almost identical size. They 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 look a lot alike because they're very controlled. They're not in soil, so you don't have to worry about any of the potential pathogens or contaminants or any of that stuff. It's all controlled. Mm-hmm. When it reaches a certain size, we then take a culture of agrobacteria. Now, this has been done in parallel. It only takes about two, three days to do this. And we have that that, that master bank of interest uh, expressing the gene of interest um, that uh, we grow up in a, in a small bioreactor, dilute it up, put it into a thing called an infiltrator. And it sounds a bit ominous, but uh, uh, so a new word for me. I never use that word in the, in the, uh, in the Cho space or the mammalian space. But an infiltrator is nothing more than a big vat. Again, it's controlled. It's stainless steel. You know, it's GMP, all of this stuff. But it's a big vat of uh, agrobacteria, diluted agrobacteria. We simply take our plants, turn them upside down, dip them in the, uh, in the agrobacteria, pull a slight vacuum. Uh, and lo and behold, the agro gets sucked up into the leaves. We flip them back over. We put them then in what we call the post-infiltration room. And we leave them there for just a few days, just like, um, you know, three, you know, two, three, four days. It really depends, you know, on the specific product. And then we harvest it. And harvest it just essentially means 
collecting the leaves, uh, homogenizing them, centrifuging them, and then purifying. Now, the process, the, the, the product-specific process does not start until infiltration, okay? Mm-hmm. That's very important because what that allows you to do is the largest part of your cycle time, which is about 20, about 25 days, to grow these plants. They're not product-specific at that point. You can literally put any product you want to, okay? Mm-hmm. You don't have to decide until your last three days, right, yeah. of the process. Right? Three days. Yeah. So okay. what that gives you is extreme uh, flexibility and speed because, you know, again, the plants are there. You have a ready stock of plants, and they get ready. We go, okay, what are we going to put in them? And we can say, oh, we're going to put antibody A, or we're going to put you know, uh, cytokine B or whatever. Now, obviously, there's a little more planning to it than that. We don't do it the day of, obviously. Uh, but you do that, and from there on, it is product-specific. And once it hits what we call downstream or purification, really from centrifugation on, you know, forward uh, to the, putting the product in the freezer, that looks very much like your standard mammalian or uh, microbial cell culture process. Mm-hmm. A series of column purifications, tangential flow to get your formulation and your concentrations correct, sterile filtration, and then the, the heart, the, uh, uh, you know, the bot- the bottling and, and freeze down. Right. Yeah. All right. So that, uh, that explanation opens up a host of questions. Um, you know, one <laughs> the, I, and I'm not sure where to start. It's a, it's a tough one where to start. So, uh, okay. So let's start here. Volume. What kind of volume are you, are you working on now? And, and you're pretty, pre- for the most part, preclinical, correct, Randy? Uh, we, we, we are pre- preclinical, yes. Yeah. So he- heading into, cl- you know, assuming that, uh, you know, you've got, got some candidates uh, that are, that are going to be heading into clinic in, in the near, near term, which your preclinical pipeline, by the way, is pretty stout. I mean, you've got, you know, look, it, it looks pretty ambitious from, from, from my point of view. <laughs> it is, um, yes. It's broad, and, uh, and there, there are quite a few of them. So heading into clinical operations, what kind of volume are you capable of uh, right now? And this is going to lead, it's a sort of a leading question because I want to get back to that agility point that you made because I think that's an important one. Yeah. Well, you know, it it was interesting at at, at BPI, I gave a a talk on this, about the platform and and somebody in the audience asked me, well, how, how much protein can you make? And the answer I gave them was, and it wasn't a coy answer, it was a truthful answer, was we can make exactly what you need, mm. okay? Mm-hmm. And the reason I say that is, you know, as people that are familiar with your standard bioreactor-based uh, production know, you are, are set into discrete volumes, right? You may have a, a 2K bioreactor, for instance, uh, that maybe you have a turndown volume of 1,500 or 1,200, but still you're, you're limited in that range. With our platform, um, you can do, um, you know, you can do one plant or a million plants. I mean, you're only limited by the number of trays, racks, and lights that you have. Yeah. Okay. So in terms of the, the scale of, of what we are capable of, our facility has in excess of a thousand tray capacity, which is a, that's a lot of plants, by the way. If you walk in there and you see the big LED lights, you go, wow, that's a lot of plants. So the, it is a lot of plants. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then we can do all the way down to, we could do one tray of plants, you know, 
And if, uh, if my R&D colleagues say, call me and say, hey, uh, we need some protein to do, um, to do some in vitro uh, studies, you know, look at uh, binding affinities activities. Okay, then we produce a very small amount purified on a small scale uh, skid, if you will, an actus, what, what we use, just like most, most folks use to purify proteins. Uh, and we deliver it and we can do it very quickly, uh, you know, within a, a couple of weeks. Uh, now, if we go on down the path, we go, oh, we need more. We're going to do some in vivo studies in animals. We need more protein. Well, okay, you, you, uh, you plant uh, more trace and you purify that at a slightly large scale. Then we go, okay, uh, we need to do tox. We need tox material. Okay. Well, tox material, uh, you need more probably. If you're doing a, an NHP, you know, a Seno study, you're going to need more depending on what you think your prospective dose is. And, and we're able to do that. And then when you get into the clinic, you go, okay, well, what does my phase one clinical trial look like? And what does the expansion trial look like? And then we can essentially scale uh, to meet those needs. Yeah. So. Yeah. Makes a ton of business sense. Um at the stage they're in preclinical heading into the clinic um, sounds yeah. advantageous to be able to throttle up and throttle down uh, accordingly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and quite, I mean, frankly, I'm, I'm making a giant assumption here, but um, I would assume that the, the plants themselves and the hydroponic, the, the facility to grow them isn't a giant, uh, a, a, it's not a giant line, line item, I would assume. I mean, it's not a huge, uh, it doesn't sound like, it doesn't sound like it would be a very expensive uh, source material. Oh, no. Well, the, you know, the plants themselves are, are really cheap. That's what I, I tell people all the time. You know, they're like, well, should we plan all of this? We don't, we don't know for sure if we need all of it. I'm like, okay, well, um, you know, plants are cheap and they, and they really are. And, and, and you're right, because really, you know, when you think of a, a standard uh, cell culture based plant, uh, a facility, I don't want to use plant and confuse people, but the facility, mm-hmm. you're talking about an upstream portion, right, uh, where you produce your protein, you actually make your protein in these living hosts, right. uh, it's, it's very capital intensive. Uh, even if you're using uh, single use bioreactors, they're really expensive. Uh, they're not great for the environment because there's a lot of plastic, even though, you know, we try to recycle things and so on and so forth. But still, lots of plastic, lots of, um, um, you know, power from the standpoint of making uh, water for injection, for instance, for upstream and, and those type of things. Um, and, you know, with, with, with our technology, you're, you're really talking about. You know, it's got to be a, a controlled space to a point where, you know, where you don't let, you know, bugs or anything else get in there on your plants. Obviously, it is very controlled temperature, humidity uh, and lights. But essentially, you got racks, you got trays, you got lights, you got water and you got nutrients. Yeah. OK. And that's really all you have upstream, you know, yeah. and it's it's uh, it, it's it's amazingly simple when you see it you know complexity of course comes downstream where we have the same challenges as as uh, other platforms where you have to you know separate the protein that you want from everything you don't right, right. to make sure uh, that it's, your your product meets the purity um, you know uh, and uh, efficacy standards that you that you needed to meet the business of biotech is brought to you in partnership with Cytiva. 
Together, we're committed to helping the leaders of new and emerging biopharma companies navigate the financial, organizational, human resources, and regulatory waters you'll encounter on your way from discovery to the clinic and beyond. Check out a host of useful resources for biotech leaders at Cytiva's Emerging Biotech Accelerator at cytivalifesciences.com backslash emerging biotech. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A lifesciences.com backslash emerging biotech. So I'm, I'm curious about this and, and I'm going to fast forward. Like I, I, I think we've ascertained the, um, the adequacy of the, of the arrangement right now for preclinical and, and preclinical studies and, and uh, clinical supply. But I'm going to, I'm going to fast forward here and just throw a big one at you. You, you're, you're working on a COVID-19, you know, SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19 yes. vaccine yeah. candidate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so here, it, and, and good for you. Uh, it's, <laughs> Not a bad idea, right? As we see what's yeah. what's going on. So this yeah. this episode is going to drop at some point uh, in in uh, early to mid Q one twenty twenty two. But as we record it, we sit here today in December twenty twenty one, and we're in the throes of the the Omicron variant of uh, of COVID nineteen. We're aware of the fact that you know what are there seven and a half billion people in the world, and we have yeah. variants that are traveling and infecting you know at a rate of millions of people per day. Yeah. On, quite honestly, yeah. globally, um, yeah. that's giant volume. You're, you're, you know, you're, you're looking at uh, in any in any case. Should you take a a, a COVID vaccine commercial? Um, you know, you got to be prepared to make some make some volume. Yeah. What what does that look like from uh, an agricultural <laughs> standpoint? Looking looking that far upstream. Yeah, well, you know, it, it uh, that's a great problem to have, right? Sure, uh, but oh, it yeah. is a but it is a problem. It is yeah. a problem. Uh, but it's a problem for everyone. I mean, it's a problem for, for Pfizer. It's a problem for J&J, uh, Moderna. It's a problem for everyone. But the good news is, you know, our cycle times, you know, per batch are really fast. You know, with, mm-hmm. with you know, if you look at individual batches. Also, our specific uh, candidate uh, that we're looking at uh, is looking at the uh, at the end capsid uh, portion of of the protein because that seems to be a, a better conserved region provided we get the antigenicity that we need to to mount a good antibody response. <laughs> so we think that's why we think this thing you know could have legs. Of course, it's t- TBD. It's like everything else until you put it in in humans and you actually see uh, see the the results uh, you know bear out in the clinic. You really don't know. Uh, but we think you know certainly none of the variants uh, to date. And I'm going to knock on wood here. Uh, have shown any mutation in the in the uh, part of the the end capsid that our that our subunit candidate actually targets. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's good. Now, in terms of the volumes and okay, what if thing this thing hits and we need a we need a um, you know we need a lot of it. Well, first of all, we think the dose is going to be be very very low, right? Given the nature of this protein, so. Even at the current scale, just in our facility, and we've not done the numbers, and I really can't give you a number because we don't know what sure. the dose is. But okay. but we do know we can produce a lot, you know, a lot a lot of doses out of what we currently have. Mm-hmm. We also know that if you look at the speed to build, you know, we did need to expand, and we got a, another twenty acres on that campus there at, at Bryant. If we wanted to do it there, uh, you build another upstream you know, uh, which is your, your plants on the big racks. And it really is, you can do it. It's a large, just a large box. Right. 
and yeah. you have the electrical, you have the, you know, you gotta have the HVAC and all that. So it's, it's not trivial, but it's far less complex than a, uh, you know, than building a, a, a standard mammalian plant. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, you know, you know, I, it's funny, my, my role in the company is a little bit as, as the evangelist. That's sort of the, the, mm-hmm. the role we took because I'm such a cheerleader for the technology. And, and, you know, my vision certainly is, I would like to modularize this thing where we could have fast farming capabilities all the way from the, the university research scale to the clinical scale to maybe small emerging biotechs that don't have the $5 million or, or plus that it takes to, to make a batch, you know, a clinical batch in Cho mm-hmm. uh, to the commercial manufacturers in maybe countries that are less, maybe less sophisticated that, you know, they just don't have the, you know, the, the, the capital, you know, available there uh, to actually be able to, to almost, almost, you know, take building blocks uh, and of, of this platform and just add them up to, to get you exactly what you need to meet the demand out there for yeah. your product sure. up there yet. But, you know, it's like I told, tell my team all the time, you know, it took Joe 30 years to go from, almost no productivity to really nice productivity. Now we need to do it in 30 months. You know, that's, that's what I would like to to see us do. So, yeah, well, it's easy. I I know it's down the road, but it's easy, you know, it's easy for a mind like mine to wander that far down the road when I'm thinking about, you know, trying to play out the chronology of this thing. Um, What, to, to what degree is, uh, is your approach, uh, either insulated or affected by supply chain constraints that we're, you know, that we're seeing right now with everything from, you know, pipettes and, and test tubes to APIs yeah. and, 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 and single use technologies and manufacturing uh, capacity for that matter. Sure. Does, does well, that, your that, unique that, approach insulate or is it exacerbated? Um, no, actually it, 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 we're, I, I would say partially insulated. By and, and by that I mean, you know, the the, the primary raw material, which is our seeds, uh, we make ourselves. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we, you know, if you make it yourself, you you don't you don't have to yeah. ship it or receive shipment. Um, water, okay, that that's there. The lights, plenty of those. The the nutrients that is a isn't anything specialized really about that. So the upstream process, I would say, is somewhat insulated from that. Now mm-hmm. downstream. We have the same issues everybody else does, yeah. getting the resins, getting the filters, getting the, the, the tubing, the bag, you know, if there are any bags are used, which we don't use many, but if you do use some for a buffer or something, right, you still have to get those. So, and, you know, the way we're dealing with that, and it's like, you know, most people I think probably are dealing with it, is that you really go into not a, certainly not a just-in-time strategy with your materials, but a just-in-case, mm-hmm. uh, which means you stock ahead. You stockpile, which is probably exacerbating the problem a little bit, because I'm sure everybody's doing that. Yeah, you know, when everybody sure. when everybody hoards, you know, hoards uh, protein A resin. Well, guess what? Nobody has yeah. it. Well, and everyone I've asked about hoarding has been uh, has has swallowed their pride and admitted that they're doing it. So, exactly. You know, you're not alone. Well, if they didn't, they probably wouldn't be being truthful with you. <laughs> right. Right. But uh, but yeah, but there are limits, right? I mean, because these things do have shelf life, so you got to find that balance, and and it's a uh, it's a constant challenge, but I, but I will say thus far, we, we've not had anything, uh, you know, fall off track or fall off schedule due to, due to that problem. So we've, we, we've, we've kept our heads above water so far, but we're, we're, we're being very vigilant, obviously going forward. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I want to, 
I, I want to learn a little bit about um, the the market opportunities. Like I said, your 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 pipeline uh, is is pretty broad, right? I mean, there's oncological indications, and mm-hmm. you know, as I said, even animal health, uh, which is a big market right there. I mean, I, I live in Northwest Pennsylvania, and we have uh, you know we, we yeah. see the way we see the way the disease travels among livestock, and now all of a sudden we find ourselves in Northwest Pennsylvania with feral feral pigs that have never been here yeah. 10 years ago. We didn't have feral pigs. Um, you know, there's a big, big yeah. market opportunity in that, in that veterinary space. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, COVID giant market opportunity, oncology, uh, several indications in your, in your oncology pipeline. Right. Um, what I, I guess to, to, when you, when you look at those market market opportunities and I'm not even sure how to pose the question, cause I'm not sure, uh, you know, exactly what I'm asking, but there, there's gotta be a correlation between, Sort of the, the approach that iBio takes, the market opportunity with the indication that you're taking in the context of standards of care or existing approaches to 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 uh, clinical therapies for those indications, right? Like, where do you, I guess maybe a good way to put it is where where do you see iBio and its approach kind of fitting into the competitive landscape in those markets you're you're going after? Yeah, well, you know, I, I think. You know the the flexibility of our our platform gives us an advantage. I mean, we can go in there and you know I've I've told potential partners already. I've said, look, try to like it. It's fast and it's cheap to try. And if hey, worst thing that happens is maybe our platform doesn't express your protein the way you want to. Now I, that hasn't happened yet, but I'm I'm sure it will. There's no platform on earth that, that does everything well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, so I think it, it, it does come back to the speed and the scalability and the flexibility. And, you know, as I started out this, this discussion uh, with um, the speed to failure is a, is a really important thing. I know that's sort of the glass half, half empty sort of mindset, but, you know, if we're realist here, right, uh, yeah. these, are, these are very difficult, intractable diseases. I mean, the easy ones have already been dealt with. Okay, and uh, so you know, e- even as we get smarter and more capable, and the technology gets better, um, you know, the challenges are still tough. And the sooner, again, we can we can get protein in a researcher's hand or a doctor's hand, uh, the sooner we know whether we've got something there. And um, you know, now of course we only solve one part of the puzzle. Okay, we can get from from an idea to a protein uh, much faster, we believe, than most anybody else, uh, based just based on the intrinsic you know, uh, advantages of our technology. Mm-hmm. But then guess what? Everything hits the same thing. You got the, you know, the IND, you've got the, you know, right. the clinical trials, you got all of this stuff, these enrollments. So there it starts slowing down again because of all the regulations. Now, now they're important. Right. And I, I am not uh, knocking regulations. But what I am saying is that, OK, if we can say, all right, guys, we have we have taken the first part of this of getting it ready to go into the clinic. And we have shortened that timeline because uh, of, of this technology. The next step, you know, once you knock down one hurdle, you, you come to the next one. The next step would be how do we change the paradigm for clinical development now? You've probably heard of things like adaptive clinical trials and everything where you can mm-hmm. sort of see the data come in and you can adjust your 
your trial so that you don't have to start over. So that's one thing. But but are there ways to do it even faster where you could take uh, maybe a highly um, um, what's the right word, uh, a high level of oversight, say, at a major cancer center, for instance. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing these major cancer centers have in common is that they got a lot of sick people, right? Got a lot of clinical trials going on, but they don't necessarily have tons of money to go out there and spend $5 million to produce human-grade material for every single idea that comes out of their their clinicians' brains, right? right. So is there a way that a technology like, uh, like iBio that can do this in a fraction of the time could could we work with them in partnership to take them to the that next step to say, all right, not only can we get you GMP material in a matter of just a, a few months versus, you know, a year and a half or two years, but just a few months, can we take that and create a very small, very well-controlled, huge oversight clinical trial for patients that really don't have many other options and can we make these things move quicker, you know, so that we can give more patients more hope, more opportunity for procurative or at least, you know, prolonging treatment. So that, and again, that's way outside my lane. You know, I'm certainly not, uh, have no influence over the reg or very little influence over the regulators or anything, but I think that will be the next challenge as we, uh, you know, as the, as the front part gets better and better. Sure. Well, I mean, yeah, like you said, it may, may be, uh, you, you may not have a ton of uh, control over that, but it certainly speaks to the statement you made from the outset when I asked you why you got into this business. Um, sure. Affecting affecting that paradigm would, would certainly work towards your mission of more efficiently impacting the patient population. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 You know, the other thing about that agility that strikes me is, is the, in this day and age when, you know, COVID's another, you know, I, you, you beat on the COVID example because it's easy to beat on, right? That's what I'm doing here. But sure. as sure. these variants emerge, you know, here, here, you know, suddenly we find ourselves talking about adjustments to the therapeutics and the vaccines that we're applying to the disease, right? Like, are we going to mm-hmm. get to a situation where our annual COVID shot is a, you know, is a cocktail based on the variants of the scene, just like the flu shot that we, you know, that, that we, that we take now. Um, and when that happens, it'd be nice to uh, have that, th- you know, th- three day uh, production cycle before you, you know, before you determine <laughs> what that, what that protein is going to end up as. So I, when I think about addressing global patient needs and being agile in terms of the actual therapeutic that right. you're putting, putting to market, that seems, seems like an advantage. Yeah, no, I, I think it absolutely is. And, and you know, it, and, and too, in the, in the broader sense, um, you know, is there an opportunity for an end, for an end capsid approach like we're taking, mm-hmm. which we're the, I think we're the only ones out there in the space actually doing it. There are several, I think, seven or eight N plus S uh, where they're going after the spike protein and the end capsid. But the spike protein keeps changing. So what is it? You know, I think it's a real question. Yeah. Right, you you enroll your trial with with this spike protein, and then the new variant comes out, and you go, well, that's not a problem anymore. Now it's something else. Right. So, could our approach actually create almost what we might term a pan-corona type of uh, vaccine, where uh, you don't really worry about the variants? You just say, all right, well, once you build up his antibodies to this conserved region of the of the virus, anytime it sees the SARS-CoV-2. 
you know, primary virus, even if it's got some, you know, like people with red hair or gray hair or black hair, right? If it's the same person underneath or the same virus underneath, and we help people mount that that uh, you know that antibody response and and have that protection, uh, that that could that could really uh, be be meaningful, you know. And again, it's fair that we you know we're we're a long way from all of that, so I don't want to get too far sure. uh, ahead of the data, but. But, you know, I think just having uh, having that approach, certainly from from the our own thinking and the feedback we've gotten from some some key opinion leaders seems to seem to be seems to be worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, a couple more questions, Randy, and then we're going to have to we're running short on time. Here's a fascinating topic, and it seems like time is uh, j- just kind of flying by here as we talk. Through. Sure. Um, when you look around, though, when you look around the, uh, you know, at your competitive set, obviously your competition is broad. You're competing with traditional producers sure. of, you know, of, of therapeutics for the indications you're pursuing. Um, sure. But more specifically to the plant-based development of biologics, uh, I've only talked with a with a handful. You know, uh, not too long ago we had a, a couple guys who were working on uh, developing biologics from spirulina, uh, which I guess is arguably a, a, a plant-based approach. Um, but it's not not super common in my world just yet. What is that? What does that co- competitive kind of set and landscape look like? Well, you know, it's a um, um, it, it is a fairly small subset. I, I, I'm not aware of anyone else that actually does it the way we do. You know, hydroponically with Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in a controlled environment, you know, uh, you have other people out there that do everything from field grown to greenhouse. And I think, I think everybody else that I'm aware of at least uses soil, uh, for one thing, which is a, another variable. Mm-hmm. And again, uh, you know, I, I, on one hand, you could call them competitors. I, I don't know if I, I would really term them competitors as much as, and a partner is not the right word because we don't have any formal relationship. But I think that the idea of of plant-made biologics just getting out there through these other companies, people like Medicago or Kentucky Bio or, or some of these other things, it may be a case of sort of all boats rise on the tide because – uh, you know, this this world right now, we are, well, as, as everyone well knows, you know, the, the whole uh, environment, climate change um, issue is, is huge on everybody's mind. And we've not really talked a lot about that. But, you know, you would hope that uh, and think that using plants, which are green, no pun intended, yeah. uh has the at least the potential to maybe be a more sustainable way of uh, of making uh, pharmaceuticals. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I, and this has been cited probably several times, but uh, by others. But uh, one study came out not not so long ago that the pharmaceutical industry is fifty five percent more carbon intensive than the uh, automotive industry, which is shocking if you yeah. think about it. You're like, wait a minute. You know, you're making drugs. They're making these big behemoth cars, but but if you think about it, if you look at all the the all the the, the energy to make steam and to keep things sterile and to create these pressurized environments and all this stuff, it's it there's a lot to it that you probably don't think about. So, you know, that's another uh, area where we 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 hope and we're actually looking into um, 
so we can actually quantify that and put some data behind it. But we're hoping that there's a real potential that what we're doing is 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 better for the planet as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, I would imagine that your you know your your upstream supply chain logistics uh, sound like you know you're, you're not necessarily you're you're not running planes, trains, and automobiles to uh, right. Right. To put to put materials into place for production. So right, right there, uh, right there, I can imagine it's pretty impactful. Um, yeah. yeah. And I mean, if you're if your starting materials are absorbing carbon dioxide and creating oxygen, that's a good place to be as well. It, it doesn't hurt. Now, you know whether <laughs> whether it amounts to to something significant or just noise on the baseline, we don't know yet. But uh, yeah. that's that's yeah. Well, why we're good- doing the work. Hey, it's, but, it's 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 PR spin. It's a good talking point. <laughs> it is. A, it's a great talking point, and uh, you know, it's well, it's it's got to be at least as good, if not better. And I, you know, we really do feel like there should be some inherent advantages there. But yeah. when the data comes out, hopefully, it is it it, it confirms that, and we will. Uh, I'm, maybe we can talk again. We can talk uh, purely around sustainability and all the great things we're doing for the planet. That'd be a that'd be a great topic. Well, there's plenty. There's plenty to talk about. In fact, I think I've, I've got a call tomorrow with a couple of your guys to talk specifically about your COVID vaccine for an article at Bio, BioProcess Online. Okay. So we got, we're we're covering iBio from all the angles, and I'm all happy right. to do that because it is a fascinating story. Um, yeah. One one last question for you, Randy, before I before we kind of wrap things up here. What what's the um, what's is there is there opposition? Given that this is novel, given it's a it's a unique approach, it's different, right? There's always opposition to different, just as a general rule of life. Yeah. Uh, do do you, do you see any uh, uphill you know challenges maybe in the investment community or uh, you know among the research community um, regulators? Where 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 do you see perhaps the heaviest headwinds? Uh, you know, I I think. I think the heaviest headwinds are are really that we are in a we are in a very very conservative industry. Mm-hmm. Okay, we we are. You know, you would think with all these great medicines that we produce and everything, you would say, "Wow, pharmaceutical biopharma, man, these guys are technologically leading the pack." It's, it's not true. I I used to joke with my warehouse people when we put in barcoding. And I was like, congratulations, guys. We're now doing what the food industry has done for 40 years. Okay. So I I think that's a big challenge. Change is hard in our industry because when you change, you take risk, right? Now, um, you know, the the thing is, okay, you're a small biotech. Okay. You've got, you've got a, a lead compound. Your whole company hinges on that compound, right? And you go, okay. I can put it in Cho, which there are, I don't know, 40 approved drugs or more mm-hmm. using that platform. Or I can go out here and try this thing I've never heard of called iBioFast Farming. Well, if money weren't a, a, an issue, um, you know, the conservative person, which a lot of us are in this business, would say, hey, I know it costs a lot more. It takes a lot more time. Uh fraught with the scale-up challenges and all this other stuff. But you know what? There are 40 drugs out there approved. So right, if, if I go with these plant guys and it doesn't work, then I'm going to get fired. Okay? Yeah. So yeah. I think that's the challenge is the fear of the unknown and the fear of change and fear of doing something different. And that's why we're we're pursuing our own pipeline. Yeah. Because, well, not only does it create value for, for our company and our shareholders, 
uh, by developing drugs. So that's really where the where the you know where, you know where the uh, results are and where the the value is. But it also hopefully helps us validate our platform so that others will look at it and go, you know, when when that guy Randy Maddox tells me, hey, I can get you GMP protein in a quarter of the time at 20% of the cost, they believe it. And they believe at the end of the day, they're going to have something they can put into people in the clinic that's going to work. We're going to deliver to them. This platform is going to deliver to them. And they're not going to get fired as a result of, 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 of doing that. So yeah. I think that's, you know, that's, that, you know, it's like anything else. Hey, you, you can bet that back, back when Cho came out 30 years ago, uh, nobody was clamoring for that. It was, uh, it was born of necessity. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in the, in the industry today with, uh, with the capacity constraints at a lot of your big mammalian, you know, CDMOs and everything, you know, where you're 18 months out, two years out, even further, not to mention the millions and millions of dollars of cost. You know, what I would say to other folks out there in these biotech startups is, well, number one, time's your enemy. Number two, you got to take prudent risks. And what's prudent? Well, if it works out for you, it was prudent. If it doesn't, then it probably <laughs> wasn't, right? But you got to take prudent risks. And with our technology, it really is a try, you know, a try to like an approach because you got, you really got not a lot to lose because it doesn't take a lot, a lot for us to do a feasibility and say, hey, this works great. What do you need? Do you want to partner this thing? Whatever. We're open to all sorts of, of opportunities in that space. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it, Randy. It's uh, always, always fun talking to you. Uh, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by the opportunities your company is exploring. Um, we will continue to pay attention, continue to all talk right. to you guys and yep. Stay abreast of the situation. So, all right. um, thank you. Thank you for joining us. Oh, you're welcome, Matt. Thank you for having me. So that's iBioCOO, Randy Maddox. I'm Matt Piller, and this is the Business of Biotech. We are produced by Bioprocess Online with support from Cytiva, which demonstrates its support for emerging biotech at the Biotech Accelerator. You can find it at CytivaLifesciences.com, that is, backslash emerging biotech. Check that out. Sign up for my newsletter at uh, BioprocessOnline.com. If you're enjoying meeting the leaders of emerging biopharma's on this podcast, let us know by giving us a five-star rating and subscribing to the pod. In the meantime, thanks for listening.